Welcome to the Damascus Road Podcast. On the road to Damascus, Paul had a radical encounter with Jesus and his life was changed forever. That is what we hope and pray for here. Now, on to this week's episode. All right, so who here, like Riley, has ever moved to a new place? Lots of you guys. Me too. Um, the summer before eighth grade, I moved to, from El Paso, Texas, to the bustling metropolis of Queen Creek, Arizona, which is the land of cows and cotton fields and pretty much nothing. Um, but it was also my first chance to ride the bus. You guys know about the bus, right? How the bus is where you make or break your social game. The drama of the seat choice. The casual out-of-school conversations over the backs of smelly leather seats. Being on close proximity to all the cool kids because you guys are temporarily locked in this long vehicle together. Pretty awesome. It was an opportunity denied to me my whole previous school-going experience. And this was probably why seventh grade Megan was incredibly awkward and had no friends, because I didn't get to ride the bus. Clearly, that was the key missing factor. But now I had my chance. With the move, I, for the first time, lived too far away from school to walk, and I now had the novel, amazing opportunity to board the yellow school bus and remake awkward loner seventh grade Megan into cool, popular eighth grade Megan, surrounded by all these amazing friends, of course. So, first day of school arrived in the middle of Arizona's sweltering July because apparently my new school believed in roasting students alive. Why, Arizona? Why do you start school in July? Let us stay inside until September. But they didn't. So, I carefully selected my most flattering outfit. Now, this was tricky for several reasons. Firstly, my adolescent body looked like a giraffe. It is hard to flatteringly clothe a giraffe. There are just too many angles, too much neck. But I had a solution. I had this really nice, baggy, hand-me-down shirt from my older cousin Andrew. Yes, it was a boy's shirt, with this like moody band logo on it. And it was long enough and loose enough to obscure my entire body. So check, got that covered. Second issue, I had ended my summer vacation visiting my friend in Texas, and we may have unwittingly tromped through some poison ivy. So my legs were currently covered in like disgusting, boil-looking sores, not the sort of thing to attract all of these amazing friends I was going to make. So I covered those too with my fancy bell-bottom jeans, perfect for a thousand degree weather. And lastly, my hair. It was long and luxurious, obviously, but much too unpredictable to ever wear it down. Got to tie that stuff down. So I did my classic hairstyle. I slicked it back as tightly as I could to my skull so that I had this nice like facelift effect with my eyebrows and then this really long skinny rat tail all the way down my back. Looking fine. My most winning look achieved, I set out for the bus stop a cool 45 minutes early and I sat on the curb poised to make all of my new best friends. Now, it was a full half hour before anyone else showed up. Um, and because Arizona is over 100 degrees at 7 a.m. in the morning, and I was wearing pants, I was quite sweaty by the time any of my new classmates showed up. And that's when I remembered an unfortunate truth about myself. I am painfully shy. And even the thought of talking to someone makes me want to curl up and die inside. 
So this singular truth waylaid all of my best laid plans. Rather than coolly chatting up my new best friends, I quickly buried my nose in a book and I refused to make eye contact with any other human being until I was safely ensconced in a desk at school where thankfully you're just not allowed to talk to people without getting told off by the teacher. Whew, avoided that landmine. And it was then that I realized that rather than being my ticket to popularity and friends, the bus was a social nightmare. I had to sit next to someone I didn't know for 35 minutes, which only highlighted my social ineptitude and awkwardness when I failed to say a single word to them the entire ride. And then I blushed furiously whenever someone tried to talk to me. It was awful. Rather than fulfilling all my hopes of friendship and connection, it was unfortunately the beginning of a very long and lonely year. Surrounded by all of these potential friends I felt incapable of talking to, desperately wanting to have these friends, but feeling just invisible. My little giraffe heart longed to belong, but alas, eighth grade at Walker Butte Middle School was not going to fulfill that dream for me. Now, have you ever felt what I've felt before, that desire to be accepted by other people, to feel seen and loved and wanted, to have friends who accept your baggy clothes, your slick-backed hair, your ungainly giraffe angles? Maybe like me, you've had periods in your life where you've struggled to feel accepted, where you've longed to belong, but no one really seems to care. It's a really painful feeling, and it's a feeling that drives a lot of us, perhaps more people than we realize because we have a loneliness epidemic in our world. Now, loneliness is a human universal emotion. We have all experienced it at one point or another, but loneliness is particularly exacerbated by how our world is constructed in the West. So we have all of this superficial pseudo-connectedness through social media, but it actually is masking our lack of deep, intimate friendships. We live in an individualist society that is catered to our personal comfort which actually is undercutting all of our skills and abilities to make and maintain relationships with messy, complicated, uncomfortable people. The COVID pandemic swept through our country, literally isolating each other for over a year, destabilizing our internal worlds, our social connectedness, and the nature of our relationships to one another. And loneliness is so ubiquitous that oftentimes we are no longer even aware that we are lonely. This is just the way things are. This is just how people feel, disconnected, lightly depressed, social anxiety, longing to belong, but never seeming to find those people to belong to. Now, as we continue our series looking at evangelism in the postmodern world, we will encounter many people who are lonely, people who are longing to belong, and maybe you are even one of those people. And guess what? Jesus has good news for us. Jesus has good news for all of the lonely people. As followers of Jesus, we can help walk alongside lonely people on their journeys to Jesus and point them in the direction of what they are really looking for, the gift that all of our little giraffe hearts long for. So how do we walk alongside those who long to belong? Well, shockingly, Jesus is really, really good at this. So we're going to spend this morning really diving into a conversation that he has with a woman at a well from the region of Samaria. Now, Jesus talks to loads of different people in the Gospels who are all on these different soul journeys that we're exploring in this series. Devin walked us through the search for truth and security last week and people who are on those soul, that soul journey. And next week, we're going to be looking at the soul journey of destiny. So how do we know that this woman at the well is on the search for love and belonging? 
because while all of us resonate with all of these soul journeys to some extent, there are ones that are more salient for different people at different times. And it's really important that we can figure out which journey is really speaking to this person's heart so that we can actually engage with the questions that they're asking. So if you have your Bible, we're going to be in John chapter 4 today, and we're kind of going to jump around in the story, um, but it'll be up on the screen to you if you need that. So John chapter 4, looking at verses 16 through 18, we're going to discover some key information about our friend from Samaria. Jesus told her, go and get your husband. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Alrighty, so right off the bat, we learn some very important things about our friend. She's had five husbands, which I have to say is a shocking number of husbands to have had. Who here has had five, five spouses before? Nobody. It's crazy. <laughs> so either she's been married to a string of particularly sickly and unlucky men who just keep like dropping like flies behind her, um, or, which is probably more likely, she keeps getting divorced and then remarried. Um, so even if she's just getting divorced and all these men aren't dying, um, that's still quite a number of divorces. Maybe our Samaritan friend is just really, really picky, has really high standards for men, and they're not quite meeting them. Um, probably not. In first century Palestine, where this woman was living, women could not initiate divorce proceedings. Only men could. This means that if she's been divorced five times, that means that five different men decided that she wasn't good enough, that she wasn't worth working things through with, that it was easier to leave her than uphold the vow that they made to love her until death. That is a lot of rejection, to have five people say, you're not good enough for me, and divorce her. Understanding our friend's story and her background and where she's coming from gives us a lot of empathy um, for the pain and rejection that she's probably living with. But we see that even after this rejection over and over, she keeps going back to different men, desperate for somebody, for anybody to accept and love her. And what really shows me her yearning for love, however, is that last line where Jesus says, you aren't even married to the man that you're living with now. Now, in our culture, this sentence probably doesn't mean much because cohabitating before marriage is the norm. People are more surprised if you aren't living with your boyfriend or girlfriend than if you are. But as a brief side note, if you ever want to get married or stay married, stay married the statistics on cohabitation are terrible. It vastly increases your risk that you will not marry your cohabiting partner. And then even if you do, it increases your risk that you will subsequently get divorced from that partner. So if you ever want to get married or stay married, don't live with them before you're married. Um, but in first century Palestine, living with someone that you weren't married to was not just ill-advised and a bad idea, it was scandalous. This is considered like barely a step above prostitution to be living with a man you're not married to. But this woman is so desperate for someone to care for her that she is willing to sacrifice the economic protection, the legal rights, and community standing of marriage just to have someone to lay next to at night. This is a person who deeply longs to belong. Now we can guess that this woman is on the search for love because of what we learn about her story, but 
Not all people looking for love and belonging have the same stories. None of us in here have had five husbands, but maybe some of you guys are on this journey. So I want to introduce you to two different avenues that people who are on this journey tend to fall in so that we can help identify who might be looking to belong. Now just to preface, these are sketches. People are complicated. They do not fit neatly into boxes. Um, but these two profiles are really just like a set of clues to help clue us into where someone might be in their soul journey. All right, first profile I'm going to call the partier. Now, this person's search for belonging often looks like a lot of reckless or immoral behavior. Drugs, alcohol, sex. The way I belong in is to fit with what the cool kids are doing. If I do what they're doing, I'll fit in and I'll belong. And there's also this sense of chasing fun from these people. So when we feel deeply connected to other people, when we belong, we feel good. That feels awesome and amazing. It's like this high to be socially connected to other people. And the partier often is chasing this counterfeit version of this healthy feeling of happiness we get when we belong um, by chasing these superficial mediums of happiness. Highs, getting drunk, partying, easy sex. These are superficial ways to connect with other people that give this momentary sense of togetherness and belonging, but ultimately do not satisfy. Rushing to physical intimacy can also be common in people in this category. Sex seems to be this quick shortcut to connectedness to somebody else, um, physically achieving a union that is designed exclusively for the closeness and intimacy of marriage. But it doesn't have any of the safeguards or protections of marriage to make it a truly intimate experience with another person. People in the partier category might have strings of sexual partners or one-night stands in their search for love and connectedness. Now, if you're talking to a partier, they might say things like this. You only live once. I can't wait to get wasted. Or it's going to be so much fun. Partiers often have this really high expectation of what the party or the relationship or this activity will do for them that far exceeds what actually happens. Um, they might talk gushingly about however their new crush or love interest is. Oh, this person that I've met is going to fulfill all my dreams. They're amazing. They're so wonderful. They love me so much. Um, but it never realizes. Now, again, these are sketches. There are lots of reasons that someone might party or do drugs or get drunk or have lots of sexual partners that are not to do with love and belonging. People can have different underlying reasons for the same outward behavior, but these are just clues. If you see some of these behaviors or surface-level sayings in your friends, probe a little deeper. You might find someone who is longing to belong. So on one side, we have people going down the party avenue, and then alternatively, we have the recluse profile. Now, this person's search for love and belonging seems initially very counterintuitive. So rather than like throwing themselves at people in connection like the partier, the recluse withdraws. That seems weird, you might be thinking. If you're looking for love and belonging, why would you withdraw from people? Now, people on the love and belonging journey are asking, does anyone care about me? One of the ways to test if anyone cares about you is to pull away. Does anyone notice? Do people recognize if I'm not there? Because if they don't miss me, they probably didn't care about me in the first place. 
Now, obviously, this is not a healthy approach to relationship and connection, just like throwing yourself into drugs and alcohol is not a healthy approach to relationship and connection. But it is a pattern that the recluse falls into. The recluse may also have been let down by people in the past, so they make this preemptive strike. If I don't let anyone get close, then I can't get hurt. A recluse might say things like, you can only trust yourself. I don't need anyone. If you let people in, they'll just hurt you. I stopped coming, but nobody reached out to me. I should move away, or I should just start over. They might have this like lone wolf mentality, like Lego Batman. <laughs> this past week, I rewatched Lego Batman for the first time. Oh my gosh, it is so good. If you guys want to get to know the recluse, just watch Lego Batman. He had, he's it to a T. Um, all the complications of a recluse longing to belong. Um, now, this is a little bit serious, but just want to also put this out there, that a, someone who falls in a recluse category might also joke about suicide. Um, recluses are not necessarily suicidal, but joking about it is kind of the ultimate disappear and see if anyone notices me. Um, so even if they might not actually be suicidal, um, if anyone around you ever jokes about suicide, even if you're 99% sure it's a joke, take it seriously. Suicide is never something to be taken lightly, and so do the loving thing, and I want you to ask them outright if they're thinking about killing themselves. Um, it might be awkward, they might get offended. Why would you ever think I would do something like that? That doesn't matter. Um, it is way better to have an awkward conversation than to have a dead friend. So, if someone jokes about it, ask. Um, and even if they are not actually suicidal, asking might open this path to a real conversation with your friend about what's actually going on with them. All right, so we have two different profiles. We have the partier and we have the recluse. Both of them are looking for love, um, but they're looking for it in different ways. So these are the clues and the behaviors that you guys should be sensitive to, that you should be looking out for when you're talking to someone um, to kind of clue us into, okay, they're on this longing to belong journey. So I want to ask you guys, which one do you think that the Samaritan woman might be under? Partier? Good work, you guys. Excellent identification. <laughs> yes, the Samaritan woman is showing lots of signs of a partier. Um, just based on her romantic history and the immoral behavior she's engaging in for connection, we can be pretty sure that she's longing to belong. Um, so these profiles let us look at like surface level behaviors that people show us on the surface, but there's always deeper stuff going on. So what is underneath the partier and the recluse behavior? Let's go back to John chapter four, starting in verse four. We're backing all the way back up to the beginning of the story. Jesus had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus Tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. All right, you might be thinking, Megan, this just seems like random exposition. Why is this important? Don't worry, it is. The Bible's not just full of random details. They are all helpful. Um, we actually learn some really important things about what is going on at a deeper level with our Samaritan friend here. Okay, what time is it? Noon. 
Fellow Arizonans, if you are going to decide to do a very physically demanding activity, say for example, walk to the outskirts of Tucson, haul water up from a well, and then carry it on your back, back to your house in Tucson, what time are you gonna do that? Yes, early in the morning or late at night. Ask Peyton, when do you bike, Peyton? Is it noon? No, that's craziness. Um, and in Samaria, their climate is incredibly similar to ours. Noontime is like the worst time to go out and draw water from a well. But this is when the Samaritan woman is at the well. Also notice in verse 8, it says Jesus was alone at the time. No one else is there. It's just the woman and him. Now, water hauling in ancient Israel was not a solo activity. It was a communal activity. All the women of the village would go together to draw water at 5 o'clock in the morning or 7 o'clock at night. Um, and this was for companionship, for protection, and then just like the obvious help if it's easier to pull buckets of water up if somebody's helping you. It's way better to do together. But no one else is around. This woman went to the well at noon by herself. Why? Why is she alone? Well, for whatever reason, we don't actually know, the text doesn't tell us, um, whether it's this like active shunning by her community because of the immoral behavior she's engaging in, or if it's her own sense of shame and discomfort that is making her draw away from others, our Samaritan woman does not join the life of the community. She intentionally comes to complete her chores when she knows that no one else will be around because it's crazy hot, and she completes the task all by herself without asking for help. We see that despite her succession of lovers and living in her boyfriend's house, our friend's life is actually deeply lonely. The rhythm and pattern of her day-to-day -day life is done alone. She's disconnected from her community, and her search for love and belonging has not gotten her what she longs for. Because underneath the partier persona and the recluse withdrawing is deep loneliness. And it is this loneliness that drives their behavior. But neither the partying nor the withdrawing seem to fulfill that ache of wanting to be loved. But then our friend has an encounter with Jesus. Now, I'm not going to read their whole conversation because it's very long and not the point of what we're looking at this morning. But I'll give you some cliff notes. So they have this long conversation and debate about theology, about the Torah, about cultural differences and the meaning of worship. They discuss ancestry and metaphor, the mechanics of using a well, and the prophecy of the coming Messiah. It's this great, theologically rich conversation. At the end of it, here's what happens. The woman left her water jar beside the well, and she ran back to the village, telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? And so the people came streaming from the village to see him. Jesus has just had an incredible evangelistic conversation with this woman. A plus, Jesus. Good job. After all of their, sorry, I don't want to mock Jesus, <laughs> um, but he did do a good job. Um, but anyway, after all of their debate and discussion, she is clearly convinced that Jesus is who he says he is, that the Messiah is real, and that he is the person of Jesus. Her life has been totally changed. But notice what convinces her. What does she run back and tell people? 
They talked about a ton of things, but never once does she bring up theology, the semantics of worship, this amazing apologetics argument. She says, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. At the end of their long conversation, what stands out to this woman, what convinces her that Jesus is real, is that he knows her. For a woman that has longed to belong, who has been rejected by five different men, who isn't worth putting a ring on it by the man she's currently with, who has no friends to do the mundanities of life with, here is a man who sees her for her, who knows her whole deep, dark story and doesn't run away from it. This is the answer that she's been looking for. Now, we all need to be known. We all need to feel seen for who we are and accepted. We are made for the garden where we are naked, totally seen and understood. The good bits, the wobbly bits, the funny bits, and we are meant to be unashamed, totally loved and cherished and accepted. And this is really hard to do. We want to be naked and unashamed. We want to be seen and loved. We want to belong, not just fit in because we conform, but to really and truly belong for who we are. But people on this journey especially, but most of us, struggle with a fear of intimacy. It's scary to be fully seen by another because being naked is inherently risky. Now, this is not culturally appropriate, um, but how many of us would feel comfortable stripping down naked right here, right now, in front of each other? I guess Mason's very comfortable with his body. (laughs) I am not. That sounds horrifying. Um, That is really scary to be that vulnerable, to be that seen by other people. And perhaps even more scary, how many of us would feel comfortable confessing the worst parts of us the shameful parts of us up here right now in front of all of our friends. Being seen, being fully fully known is scary. Now, if your heart deeply craves to be loved for who you are, what is more risky than putting yourself out there and then finding that people reject it? That all those narratives you tell yourself about how you are terrible and unlovable and shameful and not good enough are confirmed by someone else. It is easier to hold parts of you away, to hide, to cover, to conform, to pretend, so there's always this subconscious fallback safeguard. Well, they were only rejecting that version of me. They didn't reject the real me. We long to belong, but we are terrified of intimacy. But running from vulnerability and intimacy is actually self-sabotaging our deep desire for belonging. Shame researcher Brene Brown writes, our capacity for wholeheartedness can never be greater than our willingness to be brokenhearted. Again, it goes back to the idea that we are so afraid of feeling pain and feeling loss that we opt to live disappointed rather than to feel disappointed. We are never fully in. There is no raw engagement. Now the recluse especially falls into this pattern. They are so afraid of feeling the pain of rejection that they opt to live disappointed and withdrawn rather than risk actually being disappointed by other people. They are never fully in. They don't engage from a real place, from a raw place. There's always walls up, barriers up, sarcasm, outstretched stiff arm, this close but no closer. Now to some extent, the partier also doesn't bring their full self. 
They offer what they think other people want from them, a good time, an easy friend, superficial pleasure, but they don't bring a whole self of integrity. Is this actually the behavior that I want? Is this actually who I am, who I want to be? What of myself am I not being honest about when I pretend like all I want is easy sex, when what I'm actually craving is real, deep relationship? How am I, too, being disingenuous and not engaging from a raw place? On both sides of the coin, the partier and the recluse struggle to be truly vulnerable, to be truly seen for who they are, because it is so scary and risky. Renee Brown continues, vulnerability is uncertainty. It is risk and emotional exposure. It's that unstable feeling we get when we step out of our comfort zone or do something that forces us to loosen control. In fact, vulnerability is the core, the heart, the center of meaningful human experiences. When we are lonely and longing to belong, True vulnerability is the only path forward to the meaningful human experiences we crave. But if you're scared of intimacy, you have probably spotted the difficulty with vulnerability. When you let yourself be seen, you can actually be rejected. It's nice to say, be vulnerable, it's the right way. But just because it's the right way does not mean that it isn't the painful way. When you are vulnerable, people can legitimately hurt you. When you're naked, people can laugh and point at you. People can be unbearably cruel with the tender parts of ourselves, intentionally or unintentionally. But this is why Jesus is good news. Because while other people may see and reject us, Jesus never does. John 4, 27 says, Just then, Jesus' disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman. But none of them had the nerve to ask, What do you want with her? Or why are you talking to her? When we see the disciples' interaction with our lonely friends, they would have had no issue shunning her. They would have glossed on by her, no questions asked, unintentionally perpetuating her sense of loneliness. And sometimes people suck like that. Um, And that's not their fault. We are all broken. We sometimes suck like that, too. Um, And ultimately, we cannot cure other people's loneliness. No matter how unlovable or rejected we might feel by others, Jesus seeks us out. He finds us at the well. He talks to us. He knows us. He sees our whole story, and he sees the desperate longings of our souls, and he says, come to me, and I will give you living water. The issue with the journey for love and belonging is that both the partier and the recluse are taking their need for unconditional love and acceptance to the wrong source. They are both looking to fallible, broken people to provide what no human being can. We as fellow humans are meant to provide companionship to one another. As the church, we're meant to be the body of Christ, this family, a community marked by peculiar love and commitment to one another. These are good and beautiful callings on us as human beings to one another. But we as human beings cannot love perfectly. We will hurt our friends. We will hurt our loved ones. We will hurt our church our community, our families. We will hurt strangers on the streets. If you are looking for love and belonging, for being naked and unashamed, there is not one single human being on this planet that can love you perfectly enough for that, who will not hurt your tender heart, who will not ultimately fail you. But that's okay. 
because we're not meant to do that. When we are afraid of intimacy, it is a sign that we have not yet gone to the right source for our sense of love and acceptance. People cannot fill that for you, but God can. 1 John 4 says, Such love has no fear, because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. If you are longing to belong, Jesus is the one who will perfectly love you, who will never fail you. People cannot fill this hole in your life. As both the partier and the recluse find running to people for love and acceptance only leads to hurt and to loneliness. But when we run to God, we find what we are truly looking for. Jesus tells the Samaritan woman, if you only knew the gift that God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. If you only knew the gift of being fully known and fully loved, the answer to your heart's desire, the true source of love and connection, the only stable, secure source of unconditional love, God. This is what we are helping bring other people to. If you only knew, we know, we, as followers of Jesus, know that he is the source of love, and we can help point other people to the lover of their soul, the one who knows them more intimately than anyone else ever could, and who accepts them and loves them just as they are. Now, this is not to say that people are not important. We all need people in our lives. We are made for deep connection with other people. But this deep connection with others flows from our deep connection with Jesus. When we are first fully secure and accepted and stable in our sense of love and self-worth from Jesus, it is then that we are so much better able to connect with our fellow fallible human beings because I don't need you to be perfect. It is okay that you mess up and hurt me because you are not the source of my worth. I can have grace for the imperfections in our relationship because my source of love and belonging is secure, and it's in Jesus. We have to turn the script around. Love and belonging from Jesus first, and then from this stable security, suddenly deep relationship with others is so much easier. Now, as we engage with our friends who don't yet know Jesus, I want to teach you guys a really helpful tool, and it's called reflective listening. Um, I'm just going to give you, like, a very quick snippet of it. So if you're like, wow, that sounds super interesting, I want to know more, ask any counselor. It's their bread and butter. So Renee over here <laughs> um, is an excellent resource on reflective listening. Now, everyone needs to feel heard and understood, but this is especially true for people on this journey. Remember, the Samaritan woman run back to, runs back to the village, and she is astounded by being known. Now, obviously, we can't be better than Jesus at knowing and loving others, but we can be more like him in seeking to know and understand other people better, to help them feel seen and loved by us. So hence, reflective listening. Now, this is helpful on two fronts. First, people are hard to understand. But when we do reflective listening, it helps us understand them better. Secondly, reflective listening helps confirm to our friend, yes, I see and understand you. 
Have you guys ever been in a conversation with someone else where you're like, they are not tracking at all with what I'm saying? Like, they're just kind of nodding along, and I'm like, you don't get it at all. Um, that doesn't help you feel very seen or understood. Reflective listening helps keep us in sync with each other. Now, ultimately, reflective listening, if you're like, don't take away anything from this message, just remember questions. Ask another question, and you'll be pretty close to reflective listening. Um, all right, but here's a rundown. Number one. Do not rush. Don't rush. Silence is okay. I'm modeling. <laughs> Be silent. It's okay. You don't have to rush to fill the pauses and the gaps in the conversation. Don't finish your friend's sentences. Give some space for them to say some more. Second, ask big questions. It is very easy to unintentionally stifle sharing by asking closed-ended questions, which are like yes-no questions. So for example, if I say, John, do you like Tucson? He nods and says, I do. And that is a boring conversation. Instead, we want to ask something like, what do you think of Tucson? Now John can say a lot. It is a big question that leaves space for big answers from our friends. Then, we're going to ask follow-up questions. More questions. Don't change the topic. Keep diving deeper. Get to know more. If you don't know what to ask to continue following up, say, why do you think that? Super easy. Or use Devin's excellent favorite, tell me more. Very easy way to get to know someone more on a deeper level. Next, we're going to use curiosity over solutions. Now, I know that we are all very helpful people. We are very kind people. We want to fix other people's problems. Um, but when you are reflective listening, don't be helpful. Don't give advice. Don't give solutions. Um, because most people just want someone to listen to them. And when we start offering advice and stepping in with a solution to their problem, we are shortchanging them being able to express themselves. Um, most of the time, people just want someone to listen and to understand. Um, so, don't give advice. Ask another question. How have you dealt with that in the past? What usually works for you? What else have you tried? And then eventually, if you like, you can say, um, would it be okay if I gave you what has worked for me before? And then they can say yes or no. Um, another question, the check-in question. So periodically throughout the conversation, you can check with how well you're tracking with the other person. Say something like, I think I heard you say that you love Tucson. Is that right? And they'll say, no, Tucson's the worst. Except they won't, because Tucson's the best. <laughs> and then last, a feeling question. So this is like the advanced level of the check-in question. So rather than just checking the content of what someone else is saying, you're going to check the feelings about the content. And this question can be really helpful in driving the conversation deeper, because we're actually getting to the feelings behind what people are saying. So you can say something like, it sounds like you felt really lonely. Is that right? Or it sounds like when your friend did that to you, you felt really unloved. Is that right? Or it sounds like you felt betrayed. Is that right? And this can help drive the conversation deeper as we get to understand what's going on beneath the surface level with our friends. Now, that was a very, very quick list creative of information about reflective listening. So if you don't fully have it, that's okay. Uh, hopefully you took notes. But if not, ask Renee. She'll tell you more. <laughs> um, but remember, if in doubt, ask another question. Think, how can I get to know this person better and understand them more? 
But, lucky you guys, we are also going to get a chance to practice later today. Um, and if you are painfully shy, panic now. Get it all out of your system. Um, it's only 10 minutes. You'll be great. Just ask a question. Now remember, the point of this is helping us to understand the people in our lives better. We cannot fully see and know them the way that Jesus does, but asking good questions, taking genuine and thoughtful, inquisitive interest in their lives is a really good place to emulate Jesus. Like Devin said last week, Jesus asked people tons of questions. And as we understand our friends better, we can walk alongside them better and point them to the one who truly sees them and understands them and will never let them down. So my eighth grade year of school was very, very disappointing. And honestly, freshman and sophomore year of high school were pretty blah too. But during those times where I felt awfully lonely, my relationship with Jesus grew. And this is a psalm that I grew to love in that period and still do now. And this is Psalm 139, which is a great psalm, but looking just at the beginning of it, it says, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. And I love this verse because I feel like this set captures what we're looking for in an intimate relationship with another. Someone who knows me, who lays their hand on me, who has inside jokes with me, who can anticipate what I'm going to say before I even say it. Um, it's the familiarity and the intimacy of being deeply known by another. And this is the intimacy that Jesus has with us already. We are people who long to belong, and little do we know that the creator of the universe already wants to hold us close to his heart. He already knows everything about us, the good, the bad, the ugly, the silly, the inconsequential, what you think about SpongeBob, your passing reflections on pumpkin spice as a flavor profile, your frustration with the cubs, all of it. And isn't this what we long for, for someone to know us so well that we feel totally seen? Jesus is the answer to the journey our souls are on, the journeys that our friends' souls are on, and we can help point them to the lover of their souls who will never disappoint. As we go forth, may we be conduits of Jesus' words to the Samaritan woman at the well. If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. Let's pray. Lord, um, I just feel so humbled and so blessed that you know me, Lord, that you um, love me, that you've seen everything, even the things that I'm never able to show someone else. You already know it, God, and you love me desperately. I thank you for that gift, God, um, and I pray that each of us here would appreciate the beauty and the grandeur um, and just like the mercy that it is that you would do that for us, love, Lord, and that we would accept that. Um, please give us eyes to see the people in our lives who also long 
to belong, with people who are longing for you and the unconditional love and acceptance that only you can give, Lord. And please help us to point them to you so that they can ask and receive the gift of love and acceptance that you give. Thank you, God, for being such a good God. Um, we lift our hearts up to you and we lift up the hearts of the people around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining the Damascus Road Podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus together by being with God, loving everyone, transforming people, developing leaders, growing new ministries, and changing the world. You can find out more about us online at DamascusRoadTucson.com.